Hey guys, welcome back to Season 2 of the Asian Hustle Network Podcast, where we dive deep into stories of Asian entrepreneurs around the world. Be sure to check out our book, Uplifted, Journeys of Abundance, Community, and Identity, and check out our directory and marketplace at AsianHustleNetwork.com. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. If you like this podcast, don't forget to leave a five-star review. Hey guys, welcome to the Asian Hustle Network Podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Maggie. And we interview Asian entrepreneurs around the world to amplify their voices and empower Asians to pursue their dreams and goals. We believe that each person has a message and a unique story from their entrepreneurial journey that they can share with all of us. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Hustle Network podcast. Today, we have a very special guest with us. His name is Dr. Anthony Yoon. Known as America's holistic plastic surgeon, Anthony Yoon, MD, FACS, is a nationally recognized board-certified plastic surgeon. Recognized as a leader in his field, he is the author of the best-selling books, The Age Fix, A Leading Plastic Surgeon Reveals How to Really Look 10 Years Younger, In Stitches, A Memoir, and Playing God, The Evolution of a Modern Surgeon. His public television special, The Age Fix with Dr. Anthony Yoon has been viewed by millions. Dr. Yoon also hosts the popular podcast, The Holistic Plastic Surgery Show. He is a social media star with over 4 million subscribers on his YouTube channel and 8 million followers on TikTok. Dr. Yoon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Yoon, it's an honor have you on the show, to be honest. Been following your content for so long now, and I want to take the opportunity to listen to more about your story. Where'd you grow up? What was your upbringing like, and how did you how did you become the the surgeon and the TikTok star that you are today? Well, thank you. So yeah, I mean, my upbringing was probably similar to a lot of Asian Americans. My parents immigrated from Korea, and basically, the day that I was born, they decided that I was going to be a doctor. And so, like the you know, I guess the typical middle child in an Asian family, I was like, okay, that's fine. And I had this idea that I wanted to help people. And I did really well in school, uh, specifically math and sciences, surprisingly. And uh, so I just set out on the path that was kind of laid out for me. What happened after that is, you know, I had this decision to make of what type of doctor did I want to be? And my dad is an OBGYN and he had this idea that I should be one of these high powered surgeons, neurosurgeon, transplant surgeon, cardiac surgeon. And I just was not that type of doctor. I mean, they're, that's, they're very intense surgeons that I really admire because I just can't do that. You know I mean? Transplant surgery and things like that. So I had a dilemma and decided that maybe I was going to be a family doctor, which really disappointed my parents (laughs) because They wanted me to be this high-powered surgeon. And so it wasn't until late in my last year of medical school that I discovered plastic surgery, and it really appealed to me. I've been an artist all my life, and the artistry, the combination of artistry and medicine really drew me in. And so I went into the field of plastic surgery. I actually wrote a lot about this in my book, In Stitches, which was a memoir about growing up as an Asian American in middle America and becoming a doctor. 
Wow. I mean, I would love to talk about that and kind of dive deeper into that topic as well. What it was like to be an Asian in this industry. Did you experience any discrimination at all? I mean, at that time, I don't know how much representation there was like for the Asian community. But as we all know, there's not enough Asian representation in a lot of industries, but also the medical industry as well. So we'll love to hear from your perspective on that. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So I grew up in a tiny town in the middle of Michigan. We were the only Asian family actually there. There was one family that was half, <laughs> but we were the only pure Asian family. And so all of my friends were Caucasian. There was very little diversity as far as racial diversity, although there was a good amount of economic diversity there. And so I kind of grew up basically with a bunch of white friends. And going into training and, and residence, all that, it was, I stayed kind of in the same area, you know, near the West Michigan area. And so it really didn't change, I guess, all that much. In some ways, interestingly enough, being an Asian and a physician, I don't see that as a detriment as I went through school, because as an Asian person, and at the time I had glasses and stuff, like they assume that you're really smart and they assume that, you know, they, they trust you because they assume that you know what you're doing. And in some ways, I guess that's good. In some ways, maybe that's not so good because if you don't know what you're doing, then you don't want people to assume that you do. And so for me, you know, it's, you know, like I think a lot of people growing up at that time, I did encounter a good amount of racism just from small town folk and all of that, but I didn't let it deter me from the direction that I wanted to go in my life. And I think if anything, the challenge wasn't so much outside, but it was more inside and it was inside the family, you know, and it was the challenge of, you know, the, the, the old school Asian parents that I grew up with had very specific ideas of exactly what you were going to do with your life. And there was no deviation from that. And, and there, and what really for me lied the true challenge it was all my friends. It's like, oh, their parents say, hey, do what you want to do, do what makes you happy. My parents were like, no, you be a doctor. Like, that's the way it is. Yeah. And let's talk about that too. Let's talk about the expectation. How, how did you manage and deal with expectations, ex, like expectations most of your life? Right. I know that sometimes for Asian Americans, that does create a lot of stress, right? A lot of parents have expectations that we want, they want the kids to go to Harvard, Stanford, these elite schools right off the bat when you're just still growing up, figuring yourself out. How did you yourself deal with your parents' expectations of where your life was heading towards? Yeah, I think for me, I was never one to really rock the boat. And so I always did well in school. And as long as I did well in school, they, kind of left me alone. And it really wasn't until I you know, got laid into medical school where it really came down to, okay, now what doctor are you going to be? And at that point, you know, I mean, I was gosh, 22, let me think and at that time in medical school, what I was like 23, 24, something like that. And to have your dad still tell you that this is what you're going to do is very difficult. And it came down to the point where I told him, look, I'm going to become a family doctor because I just don't want to be a surgeon like those types of guys. You know, I, one day I was in my general surgery, we call it a clerkship when you're a medical student and it was three in the morning. And I saw a 60 some year old man stumble out of the call room at night to get a surgeon to go attend to a trauma. And I thought, oh my gosh, like, I don't want that life. I don't want to be in my sixties still sleeping in the hospital at night. It just, you know, I mean, God bless those people who do that. It's just not for me. And so I told him, look, I 
don't want to be a, a, this type of surgeon. I want to be a family doc. I just want to help take care of people and maybe do some other things with my life. You know, if you're that type of surgeon, that's all you do essentially, it seems like. And he was very unhappy with me, but, and this is part of my book I put in that was touching is that at one point I was sleeping in my, I was back home in my old twin bed that I grew up sleeping in. And in the middle of the night, my dad knocks on the door. He comes in, he says, scoot over. And we're both lying there in this twin bed at three in the morning. I'm like, what is he doing here? And he said, Tony, I know you say you want to be a family doctor and that's okay. If that's what you want to do, then you have my blessing to do it. And he said, you're probably not going to have much money. You're going to have a small house. You're going to have one car, but if that's what you want to do, then go ahead. <sighs> and that was really, I think when he finally let me go and, and let me pretty much do what I wanted to do with my life. And then I ended up becoming a plastic surgeon, writing three books and doing all this stuff. <laughs> so it worked out, I guess, for the best all around. <laughs> I feel like as any typical Asian parent, like they eventually get to the end of the tunnel where they're like, okay, I'll just let you do whatever you feel like you want to do, whatever you feel most passionate about. But I'm just going to remind you of the consequences. And that's exactly what he did. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's, I'm sure it must have been a weight lifted off your shoulder when he actually felt confident in what you wanted to achieve. But look at you now, you're a plastic surgeon. And I want to know what was your experience opening up your own practice at that time? How old were you? And just walk us through the process of that. Yeah. So this was in my second book, Playing God, actually, where, so I, you know, I finished medical school. I did residency three years in general surgery, two years of plastic surgery. And this is where you work in the hospitals and you learn from doctors and patients and all that. And I spent a year actually out in Beverly Hills, working with a top name, Beverly Hills, plastic surgeon. And at that point I had the decision to make is, and, and I was married at the time with my wife, but we're still married now, but we didn't have kids. And I had an offer to stay in Beverly Hills or the, when my family, they all live in Southern California. So it was either stay there or move back to Michigan where my in-laws live. And we made the decision at that time that it was either living in Beverly Hills in this high powered plastic surgery practice that the doc, the main doctors really wanted me to stay. We were doing TV shows and stuff like that at the time, or move back to Michigan. And I made the decision with my wife to come back to Michigan because we didn't want to raise our children in Beverly Hills and in, you know, a, a potential environment where it was just all about money and appearances and all that type of stuff. And so we moved back to Michigan and I started up a practice. I had no money. I mean, we were at $400,000 in debt. I had no patients. I literally did everything I possibly could. I had no friends in town or anything. And I did everything I could to try to get started to the point where I would get my haircut at a different place every couple of days, just to hand out my business cards. So that somebody might come to have me take a mole off their face or something like that. I was, it was crazy. I was bringing bagels to family doctor's offices. I was doing any, I was giving free talks to the, the Lions club and the rotary guild and all these types of things. And it wasn't until all of a sudden I, we, we did some taping of a show called Dr. 90210 back in California. This was one of the first plastic surgery reality shows. And I did it in my last month or two in California. They filmed my going away party and all this stuff. And so I had in the back of my mind, these dreams that someday this show might air and maybe I'm going to be a star from it. And so I get a call as my practice is just dead in the water. I have nothing going on. Nobody's calling. I've got literally my no office. I've got a, a, a professional phone number that goes to my cell phone. Nobody's calling. And 
I was getting really concerned that I wasn't going to make it, that we were going to go bankrupt. And I got a call from a producer for the Dr. Nano to show. And they said, Hey, Dr. Yoon, you're going to be on an episode three. I think it was episode three. And we just want to give you a heads up because I think it's going to be huge for you. And I thought, Oh my gosh, like my time has come. And I thought I'm going to be this huge star. They're going to like call me back down. I'm going to have a star in the Hollywood walk of fame and all this stuff. And I got really excited. I had no friends to have a party with there. So it was just me, my wife and my little dog. And we turned the TV on and the episode was a half hour episode. And like 27 minutes into the episode, I was literally on for two seconds. And at the end of the episode, they say, Dr. Yoon, they had literally like a minute or two of my going away party. And they said that Dr. Yoon's going to Rochester, Michigan. I made him an offer. He couldn't refuse and he refused it. And that was it. And the show was over. I was gone. And I thought, oh my gosh, that was it. That was my time. Like I literally had two minutes. It's over. Like I'm done. And the next day I had 10 new consultations. I had nine the day after, and my practice exploded from there from literally two minutes on TV. And the fact is, is with that show, they kept repeating it. You know, this was back in the early days of E before the Kardashians, where the reality shows, they would repeat over and over and over again. And it was just literally, it came down to, it was like millions of dollars of free advertising for me. And it taught me the power of media. And that kind of got me into the direction that I have gone in the rest of my career. That is insane. Like hearing about the hustle story at the very beginning, going to private practice, heading on business cards, when we look at you and you look at what you achieved so far in your social media, you had never known, right? About how much work <laughs> you put into it. And that's the thing with the Asian community too. Sometimes we look at our idols. Sometimes we look at our role models. We forget that they started somewhere too, right? Mm-hmm. And it's awesome having this type of podcast so we can hear your story and what you've been through because those who are still going through the same struggles right now, more or less would give up. You don't hear about, the, if you don't know about it, right? It's about consistency and having good head on your shoulders. Yeah. I mean, I think people don't realize, they think that you're an overnight sensation and it comes down to, I mean, it's for me, it's been, you know, it took me to, to get to the point where I am at now. I mean, it was 15 years of working my tail off, you know, I mean, people say, where do you have time to write books and to, you know, pitch for TV shows and do all the social media. And the fact is, is that I don't golf like there it is. Like if you're a doctor and you say, Hey, instead of spending those eight hours every week on the golf course, I'm going to spend it creating content, writing, studying, you know, stuff like that. Well, there you go. You know? And so for me, you know, one thing that my parents always instilled in me when I was young was a work ethic. And, and the thing that I developed when I moved here and and even before that, I suppose, but really when I moved and started my own practice was I knew that if I didn't bust my butt, that I was going to fail. Like I was, it, and, and, and failure was not an option. So I decided when I moved to Michigan, I, that I was going to outwork and outlast and outplay. It's like survivor <laughs> outwork, outplay, outlast everybody. And I said, you know, within five years, I'm going to be the top guy in town. And I actually sent letters to 25 plastic surgeons in town asking for a job for like, can you please take me under your wing? Nobody replied. I got zero offers. And so I decided at that point, okay, if nobody's going to help me, I'm going to take their business from them. And, and I'm, and, and five years from now, I'm going to be the top guy. And so in, in, in our Asian, like in a kind way at the same time, I didn't want anything bad to happen to these other doctors, but at the same time, Hey, you know what? I'm going to carve my own niche out there no matter what. Ooh, I love it. I love it so much. So in a way you are an overnight sensation, right? Let's talk about your TikTok real quick. Because I noticed your TikTok account grew tremendously 
month after month, week after week. I I think we've been following you for a pretty long time now, right? Let's talk about that real quick. How did you get into TikTok? How did you hear about TikTok? Did your daughter get you into TikTok, <laughs> right? You're so yeah, it's interesting. So I was busy back in the Facebook days of Facebook Live, and I did Twitter for a while, and I was on Instagram, but I wasn't one of the first doctors on Instagram. And then this thing came around TikTok, and at the time I was focused on social media. You know, before doing social media, a lot of people don't know, but I did a ton of TV. A lot, like I've been on all the main TV shows. I was on Dr. Oz's show, I think seven or eight times and stuff. Like I've been doing a lot, but I just, I figured out that at some point I was going to age out and they're going to use other people. You know, it's like an actor, you know, you, you're at a certain age and, and everybody wants you on. And then at some point, like they stop calling. And I thought, okay, before that happens, I'm going to start developing my own platform. So about seven years ago or so, I would guess I started really focusing on social. I started posting a lot on Facebook, doing Facebook lives and stuff like that back when Facebook was a thing. And then in 2019, mid 2019, TikTok came around. People were talking about it like, oh, it's dancing. Like, I'm not going to dance. And so I started playing around with it. I was making little videos. And then the pandemic hit March of 2020. And at that time, I'd had a decent audience, but still wasn't quite anywhere near where I was now. And I found myself with an office that was closed with 10 employees that I had promised to pay during however time we were going to be closed down and no income coming in. And so, and I, and at the same time I had spent, gosh, it was 20, I know I spent what, 16 years or something taking care of people. And I'm a plastic surgeon. It's COVID. Like I volunteered at the local hospital if they needed me, but man, if you need me, it's gotta be like real, like we're talking end of the world type stuff. So they didn't, thank God they didn't need me, but it was like, how do I help people during this time? And so I just started making videos. I started thinking, you know what, maybe if I can give people a little chuckle, even if it's, you know, at my expense at times, that's okay. Because if I can just give somebody five seconds, 10 seconds, a minute, two minutes, whatever, um, where I can pull them out of the horrible situation that we were all in, in March, 2020, April, 2020, where we were stuck inside, people were worried and nervous, then it was a privilege. And so I started making videos. I started having people tell me like, thank you for keeping me company. Uh, I'm at home by myself for two months and you're keeping me company during this time. And it really meant a lot, all these messages that I would get and stuff. And so that's really when I started creating more content. And I really, st and I stopped worrying at that time about like, who should I be on camera? Like, you know, do I need to, to uphold this image of the professional Asian plastic surgeon doctor person? And that's not going to work on TikTok anyway. People see right through it. And that's the interesting thing about TikTok that's different than say than Instagram. Instagram, a lot of it is trying to show off your best self. Oh, look at these great photos of me that are shopped and, and these, in these extravagant locations. In TikTok, it's look at me acting like my goofy self. And so that's basically what I did. And since then it has exploded. I do also have a YouTube channel that I really started putting a lot of time into as well for more long form entertainment to try to help educate and entertain. It's kind of like edutainment. And, and I think it's worked well because part of it is that I do, I'm not worried about what people think of me. I have a waiting list of over two years for patients to see me. So I don't care. Like if somebody watches it, they don't like me, then fine. Don't come see me. That's okay. But at the same time, I think people find me trustworthy. Part of it is that I'm a Korean American, you know, like we talked about earlier, like they assume that you're smart. 
they assume that you're well-studied and stuff. And that's a good thing that comes with being Asian sometimes, even if maybe it's not true. I hope in my case it is. But all that I think has worked in my favor, you know, and, and I appreciate I do have this, you know, large Asian following. And for a long time too, people kept saying, you look like you're J-Hope's dad. And so it, a lot of it's just kind of playing into some of this stuff. And it's been a lot of fun. That's amazing. And I think there's another part of it where because you're Korean American, obviously a lot of people go to Korea to get plastic surgery. And so there's maybe that reputation as well. But I really love your, we both really love your content. I think what makes it so special is that it captures you. There's this like captivity with your content where it's like, oh, I want to learn more about this because I feel like a while ago, plastic surgery was not really talked about. You know, a lot of people always had looked down upon it, or maybe they always thought like, oh, because you're getting plastic surgery, it means that you don't love yourself, which is not true, you know? And so I think what makes your content so special is that you're normalizing it a lot and making others feel like it's okay to have plastic surgery. You know, we see a lot of celebrities get it. We see a lot of normal everyday Joe Schmo people get it. And it's really interesting seeing your content when it's like, oh, I want to know what celebrity is getting which which plastic surgery. And your content delivers that sort of, sort of a content and I just really love it. Well, I feel that celebrities do the public a disservice when they don't admit to having stuff done because I mean, some celebrities, I mean, they look so great and it's like, we put them on this pedestal of look how beautiful this person is or how handsome they are. And they go, Oh, I'm totally natural. Well, now you are, you are putting this expectation on everybody else, you know, because everybody then, if you lie about it, then you're basically saying that I look this good naturally. And so everybody else should look this good naturally. And that's just being, you know, misrepresenting yourself. And it's also giving a false, it's giving false beliefs, especially young people who are watching that and saying, well, geez, why don't I look like this person? And is there something wrong with me? And the answer is no, there's nothing wrong with you. You just haven't spent, you know, $200,000 on getting work done. You don't have a personal trainer. You don't have a chef and a dietitian, nutritionist and all that type of stuff. And if you did, maybe you would look like that person. So don't put yourself down because you don't feel you look as good as this celebrity. And so for me, a lot of dispelling that is to not call the celebrities out or say it's good or bad, but just to say, hey, you know what? They look great, but we also need to know that this isn't necessarily what you may think on the surface. Yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that to light too. And I, I like your humor a lot on your TikTok, right? Especially the squeaking humor. <laughs> <laughs> I've <laughs> seen that a lot. You know, that's crazy. I was at just a quick little story. My wife and kids and I, we were at a BTS concert in Vegas just a few months ago. And we were, we, I, were I was lucky enough to score some floor seats, the most expensive tickets I've ever paid for in my life. And we're on the floor and I have these couple people come up to me and they asked me for my, they asked me to take a picture with them. I'm like, Hey, Dr. Ian, can we take a picture with you? I'm like, Oh, sure. And then another couple people came up. Oh, can we take a picture? I'm like, yeah, sure. sure. And then next thing you know, there's a line of people. There's like 40 people on the floor wanting to take a picture of me. So I'm taking pictures with these people and I'm starting to realize they're not saying my name. They're not saying, hey, thanks, Dr. Yoon. They're just taking a picture and saying, thank you. And so I go to one of them, I go, who do you think I am? And they go, you're that guy from Squid Game. And I'm like, oh my God. So I make an announcement. There's 40 people waiting. I go, I'm not that guy from Squid Game. I'm a plastic surgeon. And like three-fourths of the line disperses. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and my my wife and kids start laughing because it was like literally three-fourths of the people left. And then there's a few people like, well, I'm going to take a picture with you anyway, because you've got to be somebody. I'm like, oh, thanks. 
That is hilarious. That's one of the best stories I've heard. <laughs> so we are nearing the end of the podcast, but there is one thing that I want to know. I feel like a lot of plastic surgeons, like all doctors in cosmetic medicine, they usually have some sort of like interesting patient story to tell. Do you have one that really stands out to you? Yeah. I mean, there's always a lot of patients that really, really, I think impact you. I can tell you one that I think was, it was huge for me. And this was one that was included in my last book, Playing God. It was a huge deal for me. I had a woman who came in to see me. She had lost a lot of weight. And whenever you lose a ton of weight, it can leave you with what we call a paniculus. And this is a lot of excess skin hanging from your tummy. She saw a different plastic surgeon. She had multiple other medical issues. A lot of it stemming from how heavy she used to be from diabetes to heart disease. She had had stents placed from having heart and multiple other problems. She had a tummy tuck done by another surgeon and everything fell apart afterwards. She developed what she said was a flesh eating type of bacterial infection. It literally, she literally had like a third of the skin on her tummy died. It took her months in the hospital and and in rehab to heal all of that. And it left her with this kind of socked in scarred tummy. So she came in to see me. She said, Dr. Yoon, and she was, you know, fairly overweight woman in her early sixties or so on it with a cane. And she said, I'm in chronic pain. She said, I've got this scarred up tummy. I've seen 12 other plastic surgeons and everybody has turned me down. You're my last hope. Can you please help me? So, so what's going on? She tells me her story and she says, Dr. Yoon, I'm in pain constantly. And she said, the only thing I want to do honestly is play with my granddaughter again. And I fear that I'm never going to be able to do that. So I said, well, let's take a look at you. I took a look at her tummy and it was just this huge scarred mess. Looking at her and kind of pulling some of the skin here and there, I thought, you know, if if things go perfectly, I might be able to recreate her tummy fairly reasonably. But she had all these medical issues and everything inside my head as a physician was saying, don't operate on her. She's way too much of a risk. If she dies on the operating table, this is on you. You know, this is on you. And I, there are times as a physician where you're, you make the decision based off your head. And every once in a while, there's times where you make the decision based on your heart and, and you have this feeling that it's just the right thing to do. So against all my other medical beliefs and all these other surgeons who said no to her, I said, you know what? No, no guarantees. I said, you can die in this operation. Do you want to take that risk? And she said, I basically, if I don't have this operation, I might as well, you know, I'm dead anyway, because I'm not living. And so I did the operation and we basically, we build insurance for it. We did the surgery and the surgery actually went really, really smoothly. And she came back to see me about three weeks later with a big smile on her face with no cane. And she had, she came with baked goods that as payment because her insurance rejected the claim. They said it was cosmetic, not reconstructive, which was BS and a whole other deal. And she said, Dr. I don't have any money to pay you. I hope that that you'll accept this cake in full. And I tell you, I have a rule that I do not eat stuff that people bring in uh, out of their own kitchen, because I don't know what their kitchen looks like. I don't know if they've got a cat walking on the countertops or what, but I'm like, Oh yeah, sure. And I take it and put it in the kitchen and I ask her, you know, how are you doing? And she said, Dr. Yoon, Yesterday was the first time I've played with my granddaughter in like nine months. And she said, thank you so much. And she said, why did you take the chance to operate on me when everybody else said no? And I told her, I said, you know, I knew that doing this operation, it wasn't just me doing it. There was somebody up above who was with me that whole time. And that I just had this knowledge, this feeling, this gut feeling that we were going to 
do this and we'll be okay. And we were, and I did actually take a bite of that cake later against my better decision, my better judgment. But this was one of those patients that I'll remember for the rest of my career, because just every once in a while, somebody comes in and they make an impact on you and you, they impact you more than you impact them in so many ways. And it really taught me that that, you know, you can learn a lot of this stuff, but every once in a while, you just have to go by your gut feeling and knowing sometimes that's the right thing to do, no matter what everything else looks like. Yeah. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that Dr. Yoon. It just goes back to remind you why you do what you do in the first place, but that just brought me really teary eyed. So we have oh, one last you. question for you, Dr. Yoon, and that is what's next for you. What kind of goals do you have within the next, let's say five years? Yeah. So I've got a lot of things going on. I've got a book that I'm writing my fourth one right now. It's a holistic anti-aging book. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to turn in the manuscript by the end of the year. So it's going to be published by HarperCollins. Also, our, I'm also in the middle of pitching a reality show. So we've talked to multiple production companies and a scripted show based off of my memoirs. So a lot going on, but you know, with Hollywood, you just never know what's going to be made and what won't. But right now it's, you know, hey, Asians are hot. This is a good time actually to be an Asian American because Hollywood wants us and, and, and people want to hear from us. So, and, and I appreciate you having me on the podcast. I appreciate you spreading the stories of so many successful Asian Americans. Absolutely. Where can our listeners find out more about you and your books online? I'm everywhere. You can find me on TikTok, on social media. Just look up Dr. Yoon. I'm at dryoon.com. I also have a skincare line called Yoon Beauty, and you can find that at yoonbeauty.com as well. Amazing. We'll leave all of that in the show notes. Dr. Yoon, it was a pleasure having you on our podcast today. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Brian, Maggie. Appreciate it. Of course. Thank you, Dr. Yoon. Hey guys, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please subscribe to the show. We would like to get to the top 10 on iTunes, so be sure to leave us a five-star review. We release an episode every single Wednesday, so stay tuned. Thank you guys so much.